Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning and to open up uh, God's Word together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, continuing our series through Mark's Gospel. So I would invite you, if you have a Bible or a device or grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, uh, to read along and to follow along in Mark chapter 9. And... uh, before I get there, just a quick update. Uh, I really am one of the elders here at Missio. Uh, it's true. Uh, for, for the last couple of months, my family and I have been out in Casanova uh, helping with our new church plant there. And so uh, it's really been an exciting time seeing the Lord moving there. We've been so blessed, so encouraged um, by the folks that went out from here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, went out from here in the beginning of February. Uh, to start a new congregation in Casanova, and we have seen God's hand throughout that uh, and have been humbled by his work. Uh, And as we've said many, many times, looking back, nothing that we had planned, nothing that we had thought up, uh, nothing in our own wisdom or strength could we have done, but we've continued to see the Lord moving there. And even this this past week, uh, Thursday morning, sat with with a gentleman from Casanova who just said, you have no idea uh, what this means to us. Uh, He and his family have lived there for a number of years and just said, we have prayed for this community. We have prayed for the leaders in this community. And he said with with tears in his eyes, you have no idea what an answer to prayer it is uh, to have a congregation here preaching the gospel. And so for me, you know, I don't sit there and go, wow, look at at what we've done. We're an answer to this guy's prayer. To me, it's, it's humbling to recognize what we're stepping into, right? Work that God is doing. It's humbling to recognize that he's, He's already at work, uh, and we pray that he would continue to draw men, women, and children to himself. So, um, so I bring just hopefully some encouragement. Things there are, are moving, and uh, we're grateful just to be a part. We are grateful just to be a part of the work that God is doing, to have some role right, in his kingdom, to be about his business, declaring his gospel. Uh, that's a great privilege. So we're going to read uh, Mark chapter 9. Uh, Verses 30 through 41. This is the word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means 
lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we, we look to you. And we pray that you would teach, that you would challenge, that you would instruct and guide us. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to hear your voice, that you would open our eyes to see, to behold you for who you are. God, that these would not be my words, but yours, that you would use my words and that we would respond in obedience, that your spirit would work during this time and that we would respond in worship to you and obedience to you ready to be your people sent by you to represent you in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue, if you haven't been with us, journeying through uh, the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, right, it's really Jesus and his disciples that are in the spotlight. We have three interactions here from verses 30 to 41 between the disciples and Jesus. Way back in Mark chapter 3, right, we're told how this came to be, how Jesus chose these 12 particular men, these 12 disciples. And Mark tells us that Jesus chose them right, so that they might be with him and so that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Right, so that's how we end up here. And these men become his full-time students, not just to learn as much knowledge as they can during their years with Jesus, but to become his instruments, right? to become, uh, ultimately, to be the ones who would carry this ministry forward after Jesus leaves them. And so we're told back in Mark 3 the intended plan for these men. And from our vantage point, we're able to see the outcome, right? Through the scriptures and through the history of the church, we know that these men, right, God used to plant the seeds of the gospel, which would begin to multiply and spread to the ends of the earth. Right, that that's what became of these men, with the exception of Judas, who would betray Jesus. But this section of Mark, right, chapter 8 and what comes before it, sorry, 9 and what comes before it in 8, and then what will follow in the coming weeks in 10, these chapters that we're in today really highlight the confusion of the disciples. It highlights their misunderstanding of who Jesus is, of his purpose for coming and of how he was going to accomplish his purpose. It highlights their lack of understanding because we see that here today in these three accounts. There are three accounts of the disciples getting it wrong, frankly, right? They, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus has to correct them not once after that point, but twice. So three accounts this morning of the disciples confused, not understanding, and frankly, getting it wrong and elevating themselves. And so, in these chapters, it just looks like, man, these guys can't get out of their own way. Right? It's like you're watching one of those blooper videos where nobody can pick up the football. Like, it just keeps slipping through their hands, and would somebody just grab it already? Right? Or like one of those romantic comedies where the guy just can't get out of his own way, and you're starting to kind of cringe going, oh my goodness, this is painful to watch. Right? At this point, I don't know that this is what we're intended to feel, but like you're starting to feel a little bit sorry for these guys because it just keeps happening. We're reading this going, man, these fellows are struggling, right? The struggle here is real. 
mean, if we look back, back to chapter 8, right, it, it begins, verse 16, they're discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. And so Jesus says to them, why are you discussing that? Don't you understand? Are your hearts hard? Right? Do your eyes not see? Do your ears not hear? Do you not remember? Right? When I fed those 5,000 people with five loaves, how many baskets full of bread did you pick up? And they say, well, well, well 12. And then he says, and, and when I fed those 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread, how many baskets full did you pick up that time? And they say, seven. So he says, well, do you not yet understand? Right? To his disciples. And then later in chapter 8, Jesus tells them what's going to happen. Right, that he's going to suffer, he's going to be crucified and buried and rise again. And Peter rebukes Jesus. This can't be, right? And so Jesus has to rebuke him back. And then they're up on a mountain and Elijah and Moses appear to them. And Jesus is radiant and it tells us that like, Peter had no idea what to say. So he just blurts out, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It tells us that he didn't know what to say because he was terrified. And then last week, Bernie looked at this passage where a man brings his son to Jesus who, who's possessed by a demon, and it t- he, tells us, he tells Jesus that those disciples of yours, they couldn't cast out this demon, right? Remember, that's what Jesus had called them to do. It said he called them to be with him, to preach, and to cast out demons, and they couldn't do it. And so he says, oh, you faithless generation, how long am I to be with you, right? That's what brings us up to this point. And so here... Again, Jesus predicting his death, it tells us they don't understand. They're talking about, then how do we be great? And which one of us is the greatest? They reject another guy who is casting out demons. And so we've got these three situations where these disciples are corrected by Jesus. And what we know of Mark, Mark's whole purpose in writing is to help us understand who Jesus is to help us understand why he came, and then to help us understand what our response is to the true risen Jesus, right, our Savior. And so I think this section, what it does in light of Mark's larger purpose, it shows us just how important that is to get that right, to understand who Jesus really is, to know Jesus as he's presented in the scriptures, not the Jesus that we want him to be, Not the Jesus who meets our desires, who does what we want, right? But the Jesus who came ultimately because we needed him to come. Because of our sin, because of our pride, right? We see how important it is to understand the true identity and purpose of Jesus. It shows us in this section that the struggle to do that, the struggle to understand Jesus for who he really is and not just who we think he should be, that struggle is real, We see that in the disciples. And as Jesus is humbling himself and laying down his life, here they are struggling with an elevated view of themselves. And what Mark tells us here in the words of Jesus, that the purpose for Jesus coming, Jesus accomplished the ultimate victory, but he did it through dying. And likewise, then, his disciples, they become great through serving, through laying down their lives. And so when when we struggle here, I think, as the disciples did, with the identity and purpose of Jesus, what we see, then, as a result is it creates a broken foundation for our own identity 
and for our own relationships. That's what we're going to see in the disciples. When they get this wrong, when they don't see the true identity of who Jesus is, it creates a broken foundation then for their own identity, the understanding of who they are, and for their relationships. So let's look at verses 30 to 32 here, where Jesus, for a second time, tells his disciples what's going to happen. This is the second of three times in these chapters where Jesus tells them very plainly, here's what's going to happen to me. And the format for each one of these predictions is basically the same. Right? If you look back to the first prediction in chapter 8, right? we get, it's in verses 27 through 29. He's going to tell them, or Mark's going to tell us, first of all, where they are on the map. Right? Because they're journeying towards Jerusalem. And that's where all of this is going. Right? That's where he's going to lay down his life. And so he tells us first where they are on the map. Here they are in chapter 8, verse 27. They're going to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And then he, Jesus is going to tell them exactly what's going to happen there. Right? And I want to look at this again because for the sake of emphasis, Mark repeats this format that he did in chapter 8, again in our passage in chapter 9, and then he'll do it again in the following chapters. So we want to look back so that we benefit, I think, from his repetition. So he tells the, where they're going, where they are, and he tells them, right, that he is going to lay down his life. He says, the Son of Man, verse 31 of chapter 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he tells them clearly what's going to happen. The disciples then don't understand it. Peter rebukes him for it. And so Jesus then goes and responds to their confusion by teaching them exactly what it looks like to follow him, that, that they're going to have to lay down their lives, that they're going to have to take up the cross to follow him. So we see that format repeated in our passage today in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Mark tells us where they are on the map, Right, as they're getting closer to Jerusalem, it says he went on from there and passed through Galilee and did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples. Right, he's going to say to them very plainly, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So he tells them what's going to happen when they reach Jerusalem. But the disciples don't understand it. It tells us, verse 32, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And so the next two sections here, he responds really to their confusion by teaching them what it looks like to truly follow him. So what we see, the disciples here, right, their status in this moment, they have an elevated view of Jesus. They had, Peter had confessed in the chapter before that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. Right? And they're starting to comprehend that that's really him. He is the promised one. He is the deliverer. They have an elevated view. They know who Jesus is. Right? That, so when he says in verse 31 that the Son of Man, right, when he refers to himself that way, they know, we've talked about this from Daniel chapter 7, that's a clear reference to him being the promised Messiah. And so they get that at this point. But what they don't understand is his, his true purpose in coming and how he's going to accomplish that. Because in their minds, the Messiah is supposed to be victorious. 
The Messiah is supposed to defeat evil and make everything right. That's their understanding of Messiah. And they've come to believe that Jesus is that promised Messiah. So when he says then that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, that for them sounds absolutely ridiculous. How could the deliverer be delivered into the hands of men? And they will kill him. Right? He's, the Messiah is supposed to be the one who reigns forever. So there's no way that he, the Messiah, is going to be killed. So these words that Jesus is speaking, the way he's saying this is going to take place, it makes absolutely no sense because they're thinking he's the Messiah. He's not going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's not going to be killed. Right? They're probably at this point starting to get a little bit excited as we see in the following verses, right? Thinking, man, this is going to work out. And here we are associated with Jesus, which means we in turn are going to find ourselves in a position of greatness. So who among us is actually the greatest? Right? So they're beginning to believe that he's the Messiah, but what we realize is they don't truly know him yet. They've got a partial view of who Jesus is, or what we may call a half-truth about who Jesus is. And what Mark is doing in, in this section is he's making it abundantly clear that that isn't enough. Right? The disciples don't get it yet. Certainly they like Jesus. They love Jesus. They'd be willing to sacrifice for Jesus. They'd probably be willing to fight for Jesus. They've got a high view of him, but it's an incomplete view. And so we step back and ask, why does Mark emphasize their confusion so much in this section? Right? Like I said, I'm reading through this going, man, I feel bad for these dudes. Why does Mark emphasize that and bring that to the surface for us so that we see their confusion over and over and over again? I, do, I don't believe it's, he's not trying to humiliate them. I, I don't think he's trying to make the disciples more relatable to us or more likable by us, I think what it does is it brings into focus the importance of understanding fully who Jesus is, why he came, and how he accomplished it. Because he's speaking plainly to them. It's getting closer. The day is coming when he's going to do this. He's going to lay down his life. Right? The Messiah is going to be victorious, but he's going to do it through death. And so as it's coming closer, it really becomes the issue. We can't get around it. What are we going to do with the true Jesus? Do we see him for who he really is or who we want him to be? Do we see the purpose for which he came and how he's going to accomplish it right? as payment for our sins? Right? He comes and humbles himself because of our pride. So that we could find ourselves humble before him and amongst others. Do we see that or do we utilize him to accomplish our end? Right? Do we see some sort of other gain in being affiliated with Jesus? And so it becomes the issue that we can't escape going, man, knowing the true identity of Jesus obviously is critical. And sometimes we're confused about it. Sometimes our view of Jesus is distorted. If it was distorted for these men then I think what Mark is showing us is that we may have it distorted as well. And that the most, the most important matter for us is knowing 
the truth about who Jesus is and why he came. And he highlights that by showing us right, the foolishness of when we make Jesus out to be who we want him to be, when that's inconsistent with why he came. He shows us the foolishness of us trying to gain from Jesus something other than what he wants for us. He shows us the foolishness of being a part of a gathering like this on a regular basis if our motive is to try to get Jesus on our side, to try to get him in our corner, to try to earn his favor and make sure that he's working things out, that we've got somehow we've earned his protection over our kids or his protection over our home or we've somehow earned good fortune in our life that everything's going to go okay for us because we're good people, because we come to church on Sunday, because we serve in ministry, right? Mark is showing us the foolishness of that kind of thinking because that's where the disciples are in this moment. And what he shows us is that he is the Messiah who gave up his life he knows what's coming, but keeps marching forward. Right? That's what Mark is showing us by mentioning every time, here's where they are on the map. Right? It shows us that Jesus willingly gave up his life. He kept going towards Jerusalem, knowing full well what was waiting for him there. Right? He's the Messiah who gave up his life, and he did that according to God's plan. Right? That's why he, he foretells or he predicts three times for his disciples because it shows us, it highlights for us that this is happening according to God's plan. It's not just because these men decided to kill him and Jesus couldn't do anything about it. Right? This is happening according to God's sovereign plan. And so we see the reality that we're not, we're not going to fit Jesus no matter how hard we try. We're not going to fit him into our plans. We're, we're not just going to fit him conveniently into our worldview. We're not just going to add him on right, or claim him to be one of many gods or possibly true for some and not for others. He's not going to subject himself to that. He comes and gives up his life according to God's sovereign plan. And that the center of that plan is his death and resurrection. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. That's the center of his plan. That if we want to know who he really is, why he came, right, it begins with looking at the cross and the empty tomb. Right? That's what Jesus is telling them about who he is and why he came. That that's how he summarizes it. That if we're going to consider his identity... If we're going to consider his purpose and how he accomplished it, we start by looking at the cross and the empty tomb because that's the work that he came to accomplish it. And I think what the following section does, it shows us how much we need that. Right? Because he shows us how much the disciples needed that, though they didn't understand it. Right? it the next section really shows us our need for him because he gives us we have two examples here, right? how it plays out when the disciples don't quite understand. Right? We see the depth, actually, of their misunderstanding. We see in these two examples right, of them arguing about greatness and then trying to shut somebody down who's doing a good work, we see that when we're wrong about Jesus, if we don't get his identity, his purpose right, 
then we end up being wrong about our identity, right, which impacts our relationship with God, most importantly, but also our relationship with others. And we see in these examples why we need him. We see why we needed him to lay down his life. Right? Because what we're going to see is a full-on display of their pride. Right? As they attempt to elevate themselves, we see why they, they needed so desperately Jesus to humble himself, to lay down his life because of the pride that runs so deep within us. Right? Where we see they come, verse 33, to Capernaum. And when he's in the house, it says, he asked, he asked them a question. What were you discussing on the way? Right? And Jesus wasn't trying to gain information in that question. Right? He, knew th- he knew the answer. He knew what they were talking about. So he's trying to lead to a, a teaching point. Right? So he asked them the question, what were you discussing? And it tells us they kept silent. Right? They knew they were caught. Right? They knew they're busted. Their hands in the cookie jar, right? And all they can say is, "I, I love you, Grandma." Like, can I, can I please have a cookie? Like, they got, they, they have nothing. They kept silent. It says, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Right? They don't answer because they're not proud of of their discussion. It wasn't productive. It wasn't a positive conversation. They're arguing. But even more so when you consider, right, the juxtaposition here with what Jesus had just said about himself, he's laying down his life and they're arguing about their greatness. Right? He's humbling himself, going to the cross and on the way they're arguing about their greatness. Right? And I think that's supposed to that contrast right, is supposed to help us see the depth of our own pride and how much we needed Jesus to do this, to humble himself, to lay down his life, right, to show us what true humility looks like, but also to pay for our pride, to pay for our sin, so that we find what it truly is to be great, what it truly means to humble ourselves and be part of his kingdom. And so they want glory right we see that jesus is a means to get what they want i think they're arguing about this because they know they're with the messiah and so they're thinking man we're we're students of the messiah we're following around the messiah they've come to realize this guy is special and we're the ones he chose right so they're starting to get an elevated view of themselves going man if we're with him then what must be coming for us down the road Right? And which one of us is going to be the greatest in his kingdom? And so they want glory. They see Jesus as an opportunity. He's a means to get what they want. And that may be one of the most common distortions, I think, in the way that we view Jesus, defining him based on our desires. Right? That's what they're doing in, in that moment. He is who he is. He is who the Bible says he is. We are who he says we are. And he came not to fulfill our desires. He came to save us and to shape us into who he wants us to be. Jesus may not be who you want him to be. But he is who you absolutely need him to be. 
And his desire is to shape you into who he wants you to be. They wanted greatness. And so Jesus tells them then what greatness actually means. He tells them what truly defines greatness. That it's not position. It's not power. That's how we often think of greatness. It's not getting a promotion. That's not greatness. It's not earning a degree. That's, that's not greatness. It's not the skills that you have or the special abilities you have. That's not greatness. Right? It's not popularity. How many followers you have. How many people admire you. Those things are not greatness. Right? But that's how we often measure greatness. Yesterday, in fact, at this time, uh, Ed and I were, were in Montreal, and we were in, I don't know if Dale has a picture, but we were in uh, the home of uh, some Nepali believers in Montreal, and uh, it was a wonderful time. This group was a, it's a new church plant that had been started by uh, the pastor of the Syracuse Nepali Church. So a close friend of our ministry here in Syracuse uh, had helped start this congregation, and we we're in their living room yesterday. And blown away, right, I would say, by the greatness of these people. Right? That the world would look at and say, these are the, the least of these. They're, they're in our country as refugees with no position, with no power, right? with no privilege, with no education, right? with skills and abilities that don't necessarily line up so well with our job market. They've got skills and abilities, right? But they don't necessarily all line up very well here with our jobs, but man, is this a special group of people, right? This is a group of people that arrived here in about 2011. A church brought them in, right? Started helping them only to, only to, to start to realize, man, something's not right here, right? It's a church that was preaching a false gospel. It was a church that rejected the Trinity, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so all of a sudden, these, these people are, are being cared for, loved, but they're being introduced to a gospel that's it's not the true Jesus. And so they end up getting in touch with Pastor Beam here in Syracuse. And Beam goes and begins discipling them regularly a couple times a month, driving up to Montreal to preach the true gospel to them, right? And, and over just a year's time, begins to appoint leaders, an, an elder, and then another one, and then a deacon, and then another one, and then a secretary, right, to manage what they're doing. And now you've got a group of folks Right, who we got to sit with yesterday morning, who love the true Jesus, who understand the true identity of who Jesus is, right? And it's crazy because you sit there in their midst and they want to hear from us, right? Because in that relationship, we've got the power because we're the Americans, because we've got a degree, right? Because we've got stuff, we've got position, we've got privilege, We've got popularity, right? They want to hear from us. They want us to teach and impart to them wisdom, right? And so we, we, we open up the Bible and we share with them. But at the end of the day, I'm blown away by their greatness, by their humility, right? These are people whose faces are just beaming, right? Who cooked us food, <laughs> who shared with us, who have much less than we do, right? Who are so excited because they've realized what God has brought them through. Right? Because he opened their eyes when they were trapped in darkness. Right? When the enemy had them right, following a false Jesus, he saved them, brought them out of that. Right? These are great people. Not because of their power or their position. 
right? Because they have humbled themselves before the one true Jesus, right? That is real greatness. It begins, what we see is greatness really begins in the heart. And then it, that carries over into humility, into service, into care for those who can't do anything in return for you, right? We have an issue, we know, with false love where we We love people thinking that we'll be able to get something back from them. And that's really where they're at with Jesus. They're they're all of a sudden realizing, man, we could get something great out of this relationship. So Jesus uses this illustration in real time. He takes a child, puts the child in their midst, takes the child in his arm and says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he gives them this illustration about receiving a child to show what it is to really be great. And I think this illustration probably has a much bigger impact in their culture because we have a culture that tends to be uh, obsessed with our children, right? I'm guilty as a parent. We tend to be obsessed with our children. But in this culture, the child has no power, has no position, has no privilege whatsoever he has nothing this child has nothing to offer them and i think that's the point that jesus is making right this kid has nothing to offer them and those are parents we at the end of the day we, we realize that like it's great when my son says man you're the strongest man in the world right but that doesn't really make me feel that good because what does he know like you know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the reality. Kids don't, you understand what I'm saying? What the point Jesus is making here is they've got, by accepting them, by receiving them, by loving them, right, you're not expecting anything in return from that. Right? Just like my kids compliment, though it's nice, right? I don't really expect anything in return for that. In fact, we know when we do, when we start looking to our kids for affirmation, right, the relationship is getting a little jacked up. We do that to serve. We do that, right, not for our benefit, right, but for theirs. And so that's what he's saying here. Look, taking this child, you're taking someone who has nothing to offer you. They can't give you any position. They don't have anything to give. They can't give you power. They don't have any power to give. And so if you receive this one child in my name, he's saying you do that It's with humility. And when you do that, you receive me. And when you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. You receive his father. And so he's saying this is selfless servanthood. That humility and selflessness are the essence of greatness in his kingdom. And so what he's doing there is he's, I think, challenging their selfishness in these relationships. Their view of themselves Right, that we tend to view these other relationships just as they're viewing their relationship with Jesus through the lens of ourselves and what we can gain. And so what I, what I think is so interesting is when Jesus explains what he's going to do, he doesn't say that they're going to kill me. Right? I'm going to be crucified for your sins. Right? To satisfy the wrath of God. He doesn't explain why he has to die. I think he does something even more powerful. He shows us. He gives us an example of the depth of our sin. He has to do this for our pride. 
He has to do this because we tend to view the world through the filter of ourselves and what we can gain from our relationships. And so we, we see in him a much better way, a much greater example, right? It's explained in Philippians chapter 2 that we're to have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself that he took the form of a servant that he was born in the likeness of men that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That that's what true greatness really looks like. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it tells us that now, right, for us, the love of Christ then controls us. Yes, he's our greatest example of what humility really looks like, But more than that, his love, now it controls us, it says. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Right, the disciples are here as a negative example to show us Right, the depths of our own depravity when it comes to our views of Jesus and the way we elevate ourselves and utilize him to try to get what we want so that we'll come to the place where we realize he died for us. He humbled himself for us so that when we find our life in him, we no longer live for ourselves, that there's a much better way than this craziness that we're trapped in. You look at the disciples' situation and go, man, how sad is that? Jesus laying down his life for them and they're elevating themselves going, we are going to win. We're going to get something out of this deal. And the gospel tells us that there's a much better way for us. That through the love of Christ, that now controls us because we've been so loved in him. Because the reality is he didn't need us. And that's what we need. We need somebody who will love us not because they need us, not because they're looking to get something from us, and that's the love of Christ that he has for us. He doesn't love us because he's trying to get something from us. His love is pure. It's unconditional. It's radical. And so that now leaves us in a place where his love can then control us. It wasn't controlling the disciples in this moment. His love then controls us. Because we don't need to get anything, right, from those that we're loving, from those that we're serving. Because we have all that we need in Jesus. We've known what it is to be loved purely and vulnerably, intimately, right, in spite of everything that we are. So his love now controls us so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So when we give up our search for significance in other places, And instead, we see an exalted view of Jesus. We end up finding ourselves united with him and with our heavenly father. That's why he's able to say, when you receive this one, this child, you receive me. And not only me, but him who sent me. We find the fullness of our identity 
in Jesus Christ. And so then he gives, we have one more example, right? And it's most likely these three sections of our chapter, they probably didn't happen back to back, right? They're put together. Right? They all happened. But they're, they're put together this way to make a point. Because this, this next example just reinforces that again where John says, Teacher, we saw someone coming, casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Right? Here's the irony of that statement. This guy is casting out demons. Right? He's freeing people from a spiritual bondage. Something that the disciples just a little while ago were unsuccessful at doing, right? They couldn't cast out demons. So they look at it. This guy is successful. He's doing it. He's doing the work that Jesus had called his disciples to do. The disciples had struggled with it, but they don't like the reality that this guy's not following us, right? Though he's doing the work of Jesus. And so again, we see them viewing kind of the whole world, all of their relationships, even their following of Jesus is viewed through their own lens. It's, their, it's, it's muddied, it's tainted by their own pride. And so be, what we see is because they, it all goes back to them not understanding why Jesus came. Their view then of themselves is distorted. Right? Their view of their relationships then is distorted. And what we come to learn is that it's not until we really understand the cross that we know what true greatness is all about. And that we have a real and true picture right, of our place in God's kingdom. And that we really know what our relationships with others is meant to be. It is only because of the cross that we can lay down our lives in service to others. That his humble death is the solution for our pride. We see that he came to die. He didn't come to take power. He came to lose it. He didn't come to rule. He came to serve. And that that's how he defeats evil. That that's how he makes everything right, including our distorted view of the world. And so we learn from the disciples' confusion, right, that when we're wrong about Jesus we end up wrong about our own identity and purpose. And we learn from the disciples why we need him in order to understand who we really are, what true greatness really looks like. And we're freed to live a life of humility because we don't have to strive for greatness. We don't have to try to get Jesus to do what we want to bend to our will, we're free to submit to his because there we find true greatness. We find what life really is because he accomplishes this ultimate victory through dying. And so we as disciples become great through a life of humility, through servanthood. And may, may we be those types of people. The disciples here become a negative example. Now we go, we know they go on, right, to do great things for the Lord. So I'm not trying to beat them up this morning, but if we're going to present this accurately, I think Mark does this in order to show us how critical it is that we know who Jesus really is. That it starts with that cross and the empty tomb. And that that changes our entire worldview. 
that we don't have to struggle and strive and view the world as though it revolves around ourselves, that we can find the freedom of laying down our lives. That we don't need position. We don't need power. We don't need the promotion. We don't need the degrees to be significant. We don't need the skills to be significant. There's no one greater, there's no one more exalted than Jesus, and yet he humbled himself for us. And so we find ourselves in him, we find true life. We find what it really is to be his disciples. And so that's my invitation to you this morning and challenge for myself this morning is that God would search our hearts to show us where, where we're trying to manipulate this relationship with God, with Jesus, to get what we want and understand that he came to shape us to be who he wants us to be. That we would submit to the true picture of Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your son. And we confess how much we need you. How much we need his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf. We confess that apart from that, our, our tendency is to view you, to view the world through the lens of our own pride, our own striving for significance and for greatness. But when we look to Jesus, we see an incredible example of humility, of the one who laid down his life, who gave all of it up for us. And so let us believe and be convinced right, of all that you have done for us that you served us in doing that. And let us trust that your sacrifice is enough to pay for our pride. That we in turn would lay down our lives to follow you, to be your disciples, to be satisfied with all that you have done and all that you have given us, that we would be a church who then goes out and serves others, not for what it can gain for us or how it can benefit us but because we love you we want to honor you we want to be a people who are so satisfied in you who are so grounded in your love that we can love others freely not expecting anything else in return so jesus we declare that you are great that there's no one like you and that we are so blessed to be your disciples in your name we pray amen